parts. <laughs> <laughs> but a mouse around these parts. Amazing. Uh, Hi. Hello. This is Millennial Poet Society. Is that our new theme song? Yep. Get ready, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach wrote a new theme song to that tune. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't sing it again if you paid me. <laughs> That's okay. It's on recording now, so we know how it goes. <laughs> you got that? Welcome, welcome. Uh, I am Marguerite Virginia. I'm Emily Klein. And we are here today to serve you some poetry. Serving up the hot takes on all the old poets. Mm-hmm. Some new, some old. Yeah. Millennial, non-millennial. Right. Gen X. Yeah. You know. Today, I think most of ours are going to be ones that are a little bit older. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mine yeah, is definitely an older poet. Same here. Both my my two. Um, but uh, how have you been this lovely New York day? I'm really good. It's super sunny and... Mm-hmm. Didn't wake up with a hangover. I didn't wake up with a hangover. It was Marguerite's birthday yesterday. <laughs> Belated happy birthday, Marg. Thank you. We had a lot of fun. And lots of fun. Lots of wine. Lots of yummy, yummy food. Yeah. Lots of like walking around in shorts in April, which was super fun. It's so nice. And everybody got home safe. It was an all-around great night. Yeah. So it was a good complain. time. Can't complain when you're with friends you love and... Doing fun things in a cool city. That's right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, I had a very good time. I also did not wake up with a hangover. God bless. Just needed a little bit of water. I was a little dehydrated, but other <laughs> that's every morning though. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gulping it down at three in the morning when I wake up, and I'm like, right. Like, <gasps> <laughs> um. But yeah, yeah. And then here we are. I slept in. It's so nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I made sure. It was so funny because everyone at work was confused as to why I was at work yesterday on my birthday. And uh, they were like, why didn't you call out? Or like, why didn't you take the day off? Or that sort of thing. Oh, I should turn. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Let's turn the sound off of that. Do not disturb. Um, so, yeah. They were all like, why are you at work right now? And I was like, well, I... Didn't want to take my birthday off because right. I knew I would be going out on my birthday. So it was like I took the day after my birthday off so I could sleep in and that way I could go out and do whatever I wanted. So I just made sure that I opened at work and then was able to go do what I wanted. Perfect. And it worked out perfectly. So glad. Yeah, we had a lot out. of fun. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's about it. Uh, I think you go first this week. I do think I go first this week. Do we have any announcements or anything? Uh, well, we do uh, have our little intro message. Just want to say, what what is that? <laughs> uh, it, as always, um, so if you haven't yet, make sure you check out after you listen to this episode, our Who's to Say episode that came out on Tuesday. Yes, yep, thank This you. week was Lovely Wildflower. So you can listen to her episode. Um, uh, if you go back on whatever platform you're in, you should be able to find it in the bonus episodes. And yeah, if you would like your work featured or if you know someone who has some poetry that they would like featured or that you really love and um, don't obviously send it without their consent, <laughs> but, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but we would love to share their poetry and we're happy to do it under a pen name like Lovely Wildflower or um, DK, our other uh, person that we've featured. Or with your actual name, like we do, and yeah. some of our other friends that are coming up will do. Um, but send us your poetry. We want to be able to share your work, and we love talking about poets who 
have published work, but it's also really important to support poets who are um, still working on getting their work out there. So we love to do that. Send it to millennialpoetsociety at gmail.com. You can find that email address right on our um, Instagram. Instagram profile. If you uh, go to MPS underscore podcast on Instagram, you can find us there. Click on the little email icon and it'll just pop right up for you to do that. And while you're there, you may as well give us a follow so you can keep up with our fun goings on and um, extra information that we like to share about our what's coming up and our poets that we feature and all that fun stuff. And just a little reminder, it's... Uh, we consider a wide variety of things poetry. So if you have song lyrics or you have a rap you've written or and you'd like to send us like a clip of you performing it or something, we would mm-hmm. absolutely love to hear all varieties of, of poetry. Spoken word, we'll accept, you know, something written. We, we would love to, to get some actual reading like you reading your own work even like if that's something you're interested in recording for us we'd love that um but we want to hear it all so so send that on over and in the meantime i guess we can i think we can start get started awesome uh so yeah so i'm gonna start this week and um my first poet is sylvia curbello she was born in uh Matanzas, uh, Cuba. I almost said Kansas. I have no idea why. Matanza, Kansas. It looks nothing like... (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Uh, Matanzas, Cuba, and emigrated to the U.S. as a child, and she now lives in Tampa. She has four collections of poetry, The Secret History of Water, which I just really love that name. Like, it sounds so... It just Mm, sounds really cool. Like The Secret Life of Bees. But it's The Secret History of Water. Yeah. Um, The Geography of Leaving... Mm. Ambush and Falling Landscapes are her four works. I really like the geography of leaving. It's it's cool, right? It's very pretty. Uh, her work has also appeared in numerous anthologies, including The Body Electric, America's Best Poetry from the American Poetry Review, and the Norton Anthology of Latino Literature, as well as some others. She's received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Florida Division of Cultural Affairs, the Synthes Foundation, and the Writer's Voice. Um, she has served uh, as the editor for the Organica Quarterly. And this is, there wasn't a lot of information, like some of our other posts before, there wasn't a ton of information about her online as far as the bio and stuff like that, but I found this really cool interview that she did with um, someone named Jeff G. Peters, who... Um, is it was just like on his personal website but he's an editor for um some organization for i think for the publishing company that published her most recent book actually um so in the interview uh she said that she began writing short stories when she was young and attempted to uh she said her most ambitious endeavor whatever piece of work from then was uh that she attempted to write a detective novel when she was six or eight and but she couldn't figure out how to solve the murder, so she gave up on it. Oh no! <laughs> I just thought that was kind of cute, thinking of like she a little like, kid like trying to write a detective novel. It's like <laughs> I came up with this amazing murder story and like all this stuff, and it's like, but I don't know how to solve it. <laughs> She's like, I even tricked myself. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, so and she remembers walking around with her small flip notebooks, writing things down, but didn't start writing actual poems or things that she considered poems um, with any regularity until her teens. Mm. And, um, 
she had been writing some in her teens, but then after, but like sort of off and on and just sort of sporadically. But then after moving to Tampa as a senior in high school, when her family first moved, I believe they were in Miami. Mm -hmm. So then uh, they moved to Tampa when she was a senior in high school and it was a strange new city and um, she began reading, reading poetry a lot more seriously and connecting with that and began writing more. Uh, And then that year in school, she joined the school's literary... um, (laughs) <laughs> I was writing magazine, but my computer must have auto-corrected it. It's a literary magician. Hey. Uh, <laughs> she joined her school's literary magazine mm-hmm. and met some other poets, including um, Dionisio Martinez, who was a very important um, who was very important to her development. She said, um, "Who I haven't looked um, them up yet." But I thought it would be cool to look into them to see what their works are and everything. Uh, But so they were, uh, she said they were each other's sounding boards and editors for the next 10 years. So someone who definitely had an influence on her work and everything. Um, By the time she was a sophomore in college, she knew she wanted to pursue writing above all else, she said. Mm. And um, she has a degree, she ended up getting a degree in journalism from the University of South Florida with fiction writing as a second major. So she didn't actually study poetry in school. And it's funny because she talks a little bit about how she had been writing fiction. But, um, and there was a period of time, so she had been writing some poetry and then there was a period of time where she focused mostly on fiction and then when she, she said when she was trying to get back into writing poetry, it took her a little while for to like get back into it because mm-hmm. she was so she I forget how she phrased it, but it was like she was using a certain part of her brain to write like longer form fiction and like that type versus yeah. like poetry. So, but then once she got back into poetry, she doesn't really write fiction anymore. Right. So it's sort of interesting. Um, but I really loved this um, answer to one of her questions. I think. Uh, I didn't write down what the question was, but I think... Oh, yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> That'd be kind of an interesting way to... He, he said, um, how would you... Just, the interviewer asked the question, how would you describe poetry? And her answer was, getting to the heart of things without a lot of setup or throat clearing. When the mm-hmm. poem works, it's like an opening door. And there you are, right in the heart of the moment. One of the definitions I remember from middle school was poetry is the language of compression, which is quite awful, really. It makes it sound so tight and cramped, the complete opposite of what it should be. I think poetry is the language of expansion, of covering a wide area and getting very far, very fast with just a few words. Mm, That's beautiful. I thought that was, yeah, a really interesting description of that. Um... So, uh, and she also, so she talks about how, like, obviously her life, um, growing up has influenced her writing, but she, she doesn't call it autobiographical. Um, but, and this poem is really interesting. I have some talking points for after, but, uh, so this one is called Tonight I Can Almost Hear the Singing, and it's from her book, The Secret History of Water. Cool. Good. Good start. Drinking seltzer. Good start. I had to get that out of the way before I started because I feel it, like, right there. <laughs> there's nothing worse than trying to go into, like, a moving thing and then be, like, choking on a burp, you know? <laughs> feel it waiting in your throat. <laughs> All right. It's so. coming for you. <laughs> so this is Tonight I Can Almost Hear the Singing. There is a music to this sadness. In a room somewhere, two people dance. I do not mean to say desire is everything. A cup half empty is simply half a cup. How many times have we been there and not there? I've seen waitresses slip a night's worth of tips into the jukebox, their eyes saying yes to nothing in particular. Desire is not the point. 
Tonight your name is a small thing falling through sadness. We wake alone in houses of sticks, of straw, of wind. How long have we stood at the end of the pier, watching that water going? In the distance, the lights curve along Tampa Bay, a wishbone ready to snap, and the night riding on that half-promise, a half-moon to light the whole damned sky. This is the way things are with us. Sometimes we love almost enough. We say, I can do this. I can do more than this, and faith feeds on its own version of the facts. In the end, the heart turns on itself like hunger to a spoon. We make a wish in a vanishing landscape. Sadness is one more reference point, like music in the distance. Two people rise from a kitchen table as if to dance. What do they know about love? So, wow. it's really interesting, yeah. That's and incredibly I, sad. Yeah, yeah. Melancholy. Well, I melancholy, yeah. And it, so it really speaks to... I, I, there, I couldn't find any notes or analysis on the poem. I wanted to see because it's... Like, I feel like I know what it's saying, but I can't necessarily put words yeah. to it. But it's like, it's talking about an emptiness or a not being completely full. Because she, te- she talks about, like, you can all... Um, in, the, in the title, it's you can almost hear the singing. And it's like, love is... The love is almost enough. The cup is half. The cup is half empty. How many times have we been there and not there? Their eyes saying yes to nothing in particular. So it's like something. It's like you're not completely whole, or there's some kind of empty emptiness, yeah. or that sort of thing. Um, and and there's a lot of like saying half. There's half a cup, half a promise, half a moon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what did you get from it? Wow. It, like I said, very melancholy, mm-hmm. where it's 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 not all sad, but yeah. it's not all happy either. Right, she did right. a very good job of of creating a picture for the in between of it mm-hmm. all. You know, yeah, those moments that don't fit mm-hmm. into like anything else that you've experienced, right. or or. It's not fully one emotion. It's mm-hmm. not fully love. It's not fully hate. Mm-hmm. But it's it's this weird in between. Yeah. It sounds like what it feels like to be depressed mm-hmm. in my head. When mm-hmm. I listened to it, I was like, that that to me sounds like when you you just can't decide mm-hmm. what you are. You can't go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um where there's like a longing to maybe be one way or the other, but yeah. you just can't commit to it. Mm-hmm. It's a very, um, a very moving poem. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was really interesting when she says sadness is one more reference point, like music in the distance, yeah. and it's like looking at it as more of like, like a life marker, like a little blip, exactly. like on the radar, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and sort of thinking of it like that. And then she says, "What do they know about love?" But it's kind of like, "What does anyone know about love?" And it's like we're all mm-hmm. just sort of figuring things out and not really knowing, like, in this weird kind of in-between. Um, yeah, and I picked this poem. She had some, she has, I mean, go read her other poems. She has some really beautiful ones. But it spoke to me. Like I said, I feel like it made me, like, I know what it's saying without being able to put specific words yep, to it. Exactly. And it's I kind of, and I like that. Like, I feel like there's a lot of poems like that mm-hmm. where, that I find that I'm like, I just really, like, I feel that. I don't know why and I don't know, like, specifically what they're saying or maybe what they intended but it just it it kind of resonates for 
whatever reason. Well, I think sometimes it's it's okay to not have the words and mm-hmm. and to maybe explore how to describe something without words. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe paint a picture, maybe do a movement or a gesture that makes you sum up that entire experience of reading the poem or something mm-hmm. or how it makes you feel. Um, yeah, things like that can sometimes help us more than words can. Mm-hmm. And Or maybe it's just not important that you put a name to it. Maybe mm-hmm. it's just like, I know what this feels like and I know that it's true and it makes sense to me. I yeah. just don't know the name for it. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so yeah, so that was, uh, that was Sylvia and her poem, Tonight I Can Almost Hear Singing. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. We'd have to look up more of her stuff. Yeah. How old was she? What, what era was she from? She is still alive. She was born, um, I believe she's still alive. I, like I said, I didn't have, there were no, like, there wasn't a ton of, there was no, like, Wikipedia page or anything like that. So I don't actually have the date of when she was born, but I believe she's still alive. Um, yeah, it, it sounded, she lives in Tampa still. Yeah, she's still alive. She lives in Tampa. I just don't know exactly like how old she is or when she was born or that sort of thing. Although I know it talked about, so she lived in Cuba until she was like around 10 or 11 or I think. And it was, they left after, um, uh, what was the dictator that Castro yeah so that was happening it was right after like the revolution and then they stayed for a little while because their parents thought that things would just sort of like mellow out mellow out and then it didn't so they moved so I guess you can sort of reference based on that okay um but yeah wow so that's that's her I'm moving my next yeah my next poet um is someone that I, I don't know why, because poetry was such a big part of what she did, but I, and I, I definitely heard some of her poems and know her work, but it was just something I always thought of her more as like a journalist and a columnist and that sort of thing, which Mm -hmm. is also a very big thing of what she did and a critic. But, um, uh, Dorothy Parker's who I'm talking about. Uh-huh, and yes. yeah, it was actually, I was talking to one of my coworkers, uh, the other day and he was like, Oh, I love Dorothy Parker. You should do her sometime. Yes. And I was like, I'll do her this time. Yeah. <laughs> so we love getting recommendations. It's our yeah. life so much easier. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> thanks Greg. <laughs> um, but so yeah, I have a ton of information on her and I didn't even go into like all of the detail and all of her stuff because it would have taken me way too long. But I definitely think I'll be doing her again because she just had some very, like she was a very funny, witty, I mean, obviously I'm going to tell you more about it and you probably know a lot of people know, even if you don't know specifics about her, you know that she was known for her wit and her like banter and that sort of thing. So, um, Dorothy Parker was born Dorothy Rothschild on August 22nd in 1893, and then she eventually um, passed away June 7th, 1967, at the age of 73. That's so interesting. What? My poet was born the year after she was. Oh. So sorry. Very fun. Continue. That's really cool, because yeah, um, like like last second. time yeah, last time I <laughs> yeah. had my two poems that were like during the same time period, and I think mm-hmm. you had someone also. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she was born in Long Branch, New Jersey, at her parents' summer beach cottage. Oh. Um, and uh, she was known as Dot or Dottie growing oh. up. To, uh, and she was born to her parents, Jacob Henry, 
and Mother Eliza Annie Rothschild. And she wrote in her, she wrote in an essay called My Hometown that her parents returned to Manhattan, their Manhattan apartment shortly after Labor Day so that she could be called a true New Yorker. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So like yes. after she was born out in New Jersey and everything, they brought her back so that she could be a they true like, New Yorker. Don't worry, girl. We can't, got you. Can't stay in New Jersey too long. <laughs> Something um, in the water. Yeah. Um, her mother, uh, passed away in 1898, just a month before, um, Dorothy's fifth birthday. Mm. And then her father remarried and she hated her father, whom she accused of physical abuse and despised her stepmother, whom she refused to call her mother, stepmother, or by her name, Eleanor. She instead referred to her as the housekeeper. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she really did not like her. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. Isn't that so funny? Like, I think of like... The, um, like, parent trap or whatever. Yeah. Just, like, the kids that hate that, like, oh, the, other the, woman or whatever. And, like, replacing mother? their... Yeah, yeah. Oh, my so, God. So, yeah, she called her the housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you imagine being that woman and, oh like, God. this girl, you're trying to, like, be a mother to her or whatever? Oh, maybe she was a bitch. And maybe know. she was. <laughs> but, like, having this kid in your life that you have to live with and whatever, calling you the housekeeper Amazing. when you're, like... Yeah. So, um, so, uh, and she, so Dorothy grew up on the Upper West Side and attended a Roman Catholic elementary school on West 79th Street. Wait, no way. Mm-hmm. Was it um, Holy Trinity? <laughs> no, it was not. I didn't write down what it was, but it was not. Uh, that's on 82nd. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> um, uh, so she went to this Catholic, Roman Catholic elementary school, even though her father was Jewish and her stepmother was Protestant. Um, yeah. Uh, she joked that she was asked to leave after criticizing the, uh, after characterizing the Immaculate Conception as spontaneous combustion. Hey. So she just like right from the get go, she called since- her stepmom the housekeeper. She <sighs> called it spontaneous combustion. Like she just had it right from a young age. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> what a spitfire. Uh, so after leaving there, she attended and graduated Miss Dana's or Donna's finishing school in Morristown, New Jersey. Which I know Morristown. Finish? Yeah. Finishing school. Finishing school. Uh, her stepmother died when she was nine in 1903, and then her father died ten years later in 1913. Mm. So, and I don't know how any of them died, her mom, stepmom, or dad, but clearly some deaths early on in her life. Oh, yeah. Um, following his, her father's death, she played piano at a dance school to earn a living while she worked on her poetry. And then she sold her first poem to Vanity Fair magazine in 1914, and um, only months later, she was hired as an editorial assistant for Vogue. She then moved to Vanity Fair as a staff writer for two, uh, after two years at Vogue. In 1917, she met and married a Wall Street stockbroker named Edwin Pond Parker II. Mm. What a name. Me. <laughs> uh, but they were soon separated by his army service in World War One. And it never said, it said that they were separated by this, but it never talked specifically about a divorce. But she clearly, she went on to have many other, like, love interests and then got married again. So they must have gotten divorced somewhere in there. Huh. Yeah. But uh, her career took off in 1918 while writing theater criticism for Vanity Fair. Uh, she was filling in for the vacationing P.G. Wodehouse. Um, <laughs> Wode House. And like um, <laughs> while working at Vanity Fair magazine, she met Robert Benchley and Robert E. Sherwood, 
And the three began luncheoning at the Algonquin Hotel almost daily and became the founding members of what became known as the Algonquin Round Table. Yes. Um, Yeah. And among its members were newspaper columnists Franklin Pierce Adams and Alexander Wolcott, comedian Harpo uh, Marx, and playwright Edna Ferber. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Crazy group of people. Like a really, like a, yeah, yeah. The group was also known as the Vicious Circle for the number of cutting <laughs> remarks made by its members and their habit of engaging in sharp-tongued banter. Yes, she would fit right in uh, Yeah, yeah. She became known nationally as a wit um, mm-hmm. through the publication of their lunchtime remarks and short verses, particularly in Adam's column called The Coning Tower. Um, her quote-unquote caustic wit was popular initially, but she was eventually dismissed from Vanity Fair in 1920 for her criticism, after her criticisms too often offended powerful producers. Um, (laughs) And then both Benchley and Sherwood, the two original guys that she had met, uh, resigned in protest, which I just thought was really cool. Yeah. Stand up for your woman. Right? Um, But she did okay because she soon started working (laughs) for... uh, Ainsley's magazine, which had a higher circulation, and um, she was published in Vanity Fair, uh, which on the Wikipedia page that I was had all this most of this information, uh, it said uh, she also published pieces in Vanity Fair, which was happier to publish her than to employ her. Yes, <laughs> um, she was also published in the Smart Set, the American Mercury, Ladies Home Journal, Saturday Evening Post, and Life. Um, when Harold Ross, who was also a member of the Algonquin um, Roundtable, uh, he's the founder of The New Yorker. Um, when he founded it in 1925, he asked Parker and Benchley to be on its board of editors, um, and her first piece for the magazine was published in its second issue. She became famous for her short, viciously humorous poems, hmm. many hi- highlighting ludicrous acts aspects of her many largely unsuccessful romantic affairs and others um wistfully considering considering the appeal of suicide which is an interesting topic and wistfully yeah um there's Mm. a poem called the resume which i had thought about doing for this episode but i did not but it's the one it's one that greg said told me to like look at and i after reading it i was like oh i've definitely heard that before but you should check that one out it's very interesting it's real short um uh, the next 15 years uh, were Parker's greatest period of productivity and success. In the 1920s, she alone in, in in the 1920s alone she published some 300 poems and free verses in Vanity Fair, Vogue, The Coning Tower, The New Yorker, and others. Wow. Yeah, her first first volume of poetry, Enough Rope, was published in 1926 and sold 47,000 copies. Her verse was described by um, the publication The Nation as caked with salty humor, rough with splinters of disillusion, and tarred with that bright black authenticity. Ah. Yeah. Some critics, though, dismissed her work as quote-unquote flapper verse, most notably uh, the New York Times reviewer. But uh, publishing that volume helped affirm Parker's reputation for her sparkling wit. Um, she released two more volumes of verse called Sunset Gun and Death and Taxes, as well as short story collections called Laments for the Living and After Such Pleasures. Not So Deep as well was a, was a um, publication that collected much of her material previously published in some of her other works, and she re-released her fiction with a few new pieces in 1939 under the title Here Lies. Mm. And... Um, she had a volume of her work containing over two dozen short stories along with selected poems compiled and published by Viking Press during World War II for servicemen stationed overseas. 
And um, it was published in the U.S. under the title The Portable Dorothy Parker, which is one of three portable series, including volumes devoted to William Shakespeare and the Bible, that have remained in continuous print. Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard of The Portable mm-hmm. Dorothy Parker, mm-hmm. so that's pretty great. Yeah. Um, she also has collaborated on plays, and she um, continued to write reviews during that time and everything. Um, in the 1930s, she moved to Hollywood, where she wrote screenplays with her second husband, Alan Campbell, and worked on such films as the 1937 adaptation of A Star is Born, for which she uh, oh. got an Academy Award nomination. And she's won all sorts of awards for her film stuff. That's with Barbara Streisand. I think A Star so. is Born. Yeah. It's her birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Barbara. Uh, today, as a recording, so... As a recording, so yeah. the 26th? No, that's, 24th? No, that's... The, yeah, the 24th, yeah. 26th is when the episode's coming out. Yeah. 24th. Yeah. Very cool. Happy yeah. birthday, Barbara. It's fun fact. Um, <laughs> she was in the 1937 adaptation? Oh. I was like, that seems... Maybe it was the 45. Like, too long ago. 1945. <laughs> like, she would be much older than she is now if she was in that. Yeah, it's the 1945 one. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I thought <laughs> I was like, oh, my bad. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I was all... But happy birthday, Barbara. <laughs> um, <laughs> she also became politically active, supporting the civil rights movement, and in the 1930s was involved with the Communist Party, which led to her being blacklisted in Hollywood. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, um, like, I was there. I Ah, those days. The good old days. Um, yeah, of no. blacklisting. <laughs> Super no. fun. Um, so, but she was still well regarded in the world of writing, and she was a well regarded poet, and went on to write another play titled "Ladies of the Corridor" in 1953. She eventually returned to New York City, and she uh, died June 7th, 1967, of a heart attack. In her will, she bequeathed her estate to Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Wow. And following his death, it was um, bequeathed by his family to the NAACP. In 1988, the NAACP designed a memorial garden for her ashes outside the, their Baltimore headquarters with a plaque reading, Here lie the ashes of Dorothy Parker, humorist, writer, critic, defender of human and civil rights. For her epitaph, she suggested, Excuse my dust. Yes, I, I know that part. Mm-hmm. This memorial garden is dedicated to her noble spirit, which celebrated the oneness of humankind and to the bonds of everlasting friendship between Black and Jewish people. Dedicated to the National Association, dedicated by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, October twenty eighth, nineteen eighty eight. Um, mm. Yeah, and um, something that they said in the Poetry Foundation bio of her is that. Dorothy Parker's biting wit made her a legend, but also masked her lonely struggle with depression. Um, And toward the end of her life, she had um, her alcohol consumption drastically increased and um, caused, like, strains on her relationships and everything. So it's something harping back to where she, like, wistfully would talk about suicide and everything like that. It says it was masked her lonely struggle with depression, but it's like it seems like she was sort of... It was right under everyone's noses. She, like, wrote about it in such a way that, like, maybe was a bit of a release for her. But it was, sure. like, clear that she was going through something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's Dorothy Parker. And oh Yeah. So, the poem that I'm going to read today is called The Passionate Freudian to His Love. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Only name the day and we'll fly away in the face of old traditions to a sheltered spot by the world forgot where we'll park our inhibitions. Come and gaze in eyes where the love light lies as it psychoanalyzes. 
And when once you glean what your fantasies mean, life will hold no, hold no, no more surprises. When you've told your love what you're thinking of, things will be much more informal. Through the sunlit land, we'll go hand in hand, drifting gently back to normal. While the pale moon gleams, we will dream sweet dreams, and I'll win your admiration. For it's only fair to admit I'm there with a mean interpretation. <laughs> In the sunrise glow, we'll whisper low of scenes our dreams have painted. And when you're advised what they symbolize, we'll begin to feel acquainted. So we'll gaily float in a slumber boat where subconscious waves dash wildly. In the star's soft light, we will say goodnight, and goodnight will put it mildly. Ah. Our desires shall be from uh, repressions free, as it's only right to treat them. To your ego's whims, I'll sing sweet hymns and ad libido repeat them. Mm-hmm. With your hand in mine, uh, idly will recline amid bowers of neuroses. While the sun seeks rest in the great red west, we'll sit and match psychoses. Psychosis. <laughs> so, uh, come yeah. dwell a while on that distant isle in brilliant tropic weather, where Freud in where a Freud in need is a Freud indeed. We'll always be jung together. <laughs> so I just thought it was funny, and it so it speaks back again to her where the the line where or the information where I was talking about how she wrote about her different love uh, affairs and everything yeah. like that. So seems like maybe she had an affair and like was seeing someone who was into Freud and yeah. it's like sort of poking fun at that a little bit and the Freudian um ways and ideologies and everything. So I just thought that was funny and um I don't have many like analyses of it. It's just no, funny it's just- and the cute little like Things that she talks about and like dream analysis and yeah. the Freudian things and neurosis and psychosis and all that fun stuff. So love it. Yeah, just fun little Dorothy Parker poem. It's like a little ode to that particular lover, you know? Yeah, How yeah. Cute. And like, mm-hmm. wouldn't you feel so? You know, I mean, as weird as it might be, or uh-huh. to see it in paper or like right. writing, like, wouldn't you be flattered if Dorothy Parker wrote you like a? poem (laughs) yeah 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 it's amazing be flattered for anyone to write me a poem (laughs) you don't Um, even have to be dorothy parker (laughs) anyone not you don't have to be dorothy i'm not picky (laughs) um so yeah that's those are my ladies for today i love it yes thank you thank you for sharing yeah yeah shall we take a short little sponsor break i think so all right we'll be right back yeah so now so i walked around all day feeling myself because i was like i am beyonce (laughs) i I am beyonce (laughs) no i just like i haven't listened to it in so long because you Mm -hmm. have to either go on title or like i bought it on itunes see i don't I don't buy things. <laughs> I mean, I don't really either, but it was my only way to listen to it when it came out, and I felt out of the loop, so I just bought it. I had borrowed our friend's title. I and know then, you did. Yeah. I didn't, though. <laughs> I have... I could have given you the information. That's going to be a fun noise right next to our... Well, I our was going to try to share with you. I don't want them. I'm going to be talking. Well, I just meant the, like... <laughs> like, that's going to be a fun noise. <laughs> Some peanut butter M M&M and ASMR. Excellent. Right over my voice. That's yep. exactly So who are you talking about today? <laughs> oh. 
So anyway, I'm Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. Beyonce has joined us while you were gone. Special guest. (laughs) Can you imagine? Do you think I have to like bleep out her name? Do you think her name's copyrighted? I feel like everything about her is copyrighted. Right? You know, like her eyebrows are copyrighted. Her hair is copyrighted. Mm -hmm. Her kids are copyrighted for (laughs) sure. Nobody else is... Nobody else is allowed to name their kid Blue ever again. Mm-hmm. I mean... Was anyone really considering it, though? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> In case anyone was wondering, you can't name your son Sir anymore, because Beyonce has already done it. Sir? Mm-hmm. Her son's name is Sir, and her baby daughter's name is Rumi. Oh. I think... The twins? Yeah. I think it's Rumi and Sir. I knew Rumi. I forgot. I forgot about the twins, honestly. <laughs> but ouch! <laughs> Don't tell them. Um, I didn't know her something was Sir. Yeah, Sir Carter. Okay, that's a choice. <laughs> I'm just gonna eat my M and over here. Okay, so, uh. It's my turn. It's your turn. Welcome, everyone. (laughs) Shut up and listen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. I had a lot to say about this person, so I ended up just deciding to do one poet this week Mm -hmm. instead of two, but I'm going to read two poems. Yeah, exactly. So, my poet for this week is E.E. Cummings. Woo! Hooray! One of my favorites. Excited Mm -hmm. to do this. Um... Yeah, I'll just dive right in. Go for it. His full name is Edward Estlin Cummings. Mm, Estlin. Yeah. Estlin. E-S-T-L-I-N. Estlin. 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 I'm eating m ms so I'm not going to Estlin. Estlin. Edward Estlin Cummings. He was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 14th, 19... I'm sorry, 1894... He was an American poet, painter, essayist, author, and playwright. In his life, he wrote around 2,900 poems, two autobiographical novels, four plays, and dozens of essays. So, your boy was busy. Mm -hmm. He is most widely associated with a modernist, freeform poetry style. But that basically means that much of his work was uh, part of the literary movement that was driven by... The conscious desire to overturn traditional moder- uh, modes of representation. So examples of that in his writing would be his idiosyncratic syntax and his uses of lowercase spelling for poetic expression. Mm-hmm. So you even his name right. on his publications is mm-hmm. all lowercase. There's no punctuation. Mm-hmm. E.E. Cummings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Ee <laughs> 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 gummies. <laughs> I hate myself a lot. Ee <laughs> <laughs> gummies. <laughs> Good. Oh. <laughs> we should put in one of those like uh, the beeps when it's like technical difficulties <laughs> and like the rainbow thing. That only, only works on TV. For TV. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And we're back. <laughs> oh. His parents.
parents were both very supportive of his creativity growing up. He often wrote poems and drew as a child and was met with, you know, just the That's utmost great. amount of support. Isn't that wonderful? That's, yeah. You don't hear about that a lot, Mm-mm. but like his parents, he, they, he was really close with them. And then also they were super supportive of him. That's so, really great. Yeah. Uh, he also had a strong relationship with God, whom he would write prayers to in his journal. Hmm. And some of them would read like, quote, may I someday do something truly great. Amen. Ah. And then he also... You pr- did. I know. And he also prayed to be his most authentic self. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't tell. <laughs> you read most of the like five syllables. His mouth. <laughs> I tripped over my tongue. It's okay. I said a lot of things wrong in mine, and you didn't make fun of me. So that's right. Where's the backup? It's just a normal you. thing for me, though. So it's not funny. <laughs> okay. He. <laughs> He also prayed to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be his most authentic self, saying, quote, may I be I is the only prayer, not may I be great or good or beautiful or wise or strong. May I be I. Hmm. He's really sweet and wise for somebody who was probably very young when he wrote that, you know? Um, but he wrote daily from ages 8 to 22, which is so cute. I don't yeah. know what happened after he turned 22. I think he got put into Busy. the, you know, <laughs> the life of being a human, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he explored various styles during that time, lots of different forms, whether it be poetry or, or short stories or prayers, mm-hmm. or little psalms, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um he graduated from Harvard University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1915. Yeah. And then he went back in 1916 and got his Master of Arts. So, Harvard man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Ivy, a thing, right? Ivy man. Ivy League. During the First World As War. As you push up your glasses. Yeah. Just <laughs> 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 push him up. During the First World War in 1917, <laughs> he enlisted... He enlisted in the Ambulance Corps. He openly expressed his anti-war views to pretty much anybody who would listen. And uh, while in... walking up to someone on the street. Yeah, well, yeah. And while in France, he was arrested by the French military for suspicion of espionage and, quote, undesirable activities. (laughs) Don't know what that was, but apparently he was pissing off the French. He used... uh, So he he was arrested and... Uh, used his three and a half month stint in prison as the basis of his first novel, The Enormous Room, which was published mm. in 1922. That's cool. Yeah. And upon his return to the States, he was drafted in 1918 and served in the <coughs> Army's 12th Division at Camp Devens, Massachusetts, until November 1918. After the war... Cummings returned to Paris on and off, writing two poetry collections called Tulips and Chimneys, published in 1923, and XLI Poems, published in 1925. With these collections, he made a name for himself as an avant-garde poet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, many critics said that all of his, all the subjects he, of all the subjects he wrote on, 
love was his most profound subject. Robert E. Wegner writes, In Cummings' experience as a child, he grew up in an aura of love. Love is the propelling force behind a great body of his poetry, which can be seen in pretty much every one of his works. Mm -hmm. um, much of his love, early love of poetry, sorry, much of his early love poetry was erotic in nature and meant to shock the puritanical sensibilities of the 1920s. Mm. His first wife, Elaine, inspired many of them. He was originally having an affair with her because she was married to an army buddy of his. Um, but they even had a child together before she divorced the guy. Wow. And then they got married. Mm -hmm. And they didn't last long, though. They mm -hmm. lasted about nine months. And then she went overseas and fell in love with somebody else and was like, bye. Um, yeah. In 1926, both of Cummings' parents were in a terrible car crash. Mm -hmm. Only his mother survived. His father's death affected him greatly. He said his works began to focus more on the more important aspects of life. So this can be seen in poems he wrote in the, to the memory of his father called My Father Moved Through Dooms of Love. Um, I'm not going to read that one, but I would really recommend, recommend looking it up. It's, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. Mm. Um, he continued to travel to the Soviet Union, which served as an inspiration for his second book, autobiographical book novel thing um, called Amy published in 1933 hmm. this was it was like a travel log of his time mm -hmm. but also like a like journal entries so but then he used it to be like a novel but it's autobiographical because it was based on this specific month that he spent in the soviet union interesting um so he had traveled around moscow kiev and odessa my pages <laughs> from May 14th to June 14th, 1931. Mm -hmm. In the book, he utilizes an abstract form of verse many critics compared to Ulysses by James Joyce, which was, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. very well-to-do back in the day. Yeah. Still today. Right. Um, on this trip, he visited the tomb of Lenin and described the Soviet Union as an uncircus of non-creatures. He makes frequent allusions to Dante's Inferno and equates his trip to a, a descent into hell. His strong opinions of Soviet Russia and the politics therein made it difficult for him to find publishers in the 30s. Go figure. Mm -hmm. With all of that that mm -hmm. Dorothy Parker was dealing with, too. Yeah. Uh, so he self-published much of his work during that time. Cool. I bet he and Dorothy Parker knew each other. Probably. Or at least crossed circles. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. In 1952, Harvard University awarded him an honorary seat as a guest professor. He gave lectures from 52 to 55. And during the last decade of his life, he traveled and spent summers in his home in New Hampshire. But he died September 3rd, 1962, of a stroke at the age of 67. Though he was well known for his modernist style of poetry, many of his poems are actually sonnets. Which, hmm. I guess, after, like, further analysis, I realized. <laughs> She's just sneaking up on us today. She's like, bah! <laughs> here for the treats. <laughs> I do treats for me. Me too, Delilah. I'm here for the treats. <laughs> it just lights like her good. booty up, you know? Yeah. Me too. I mean. Same <laughs> <laughs> girl, same. Mm. Delilah. She's like, and with that, I go. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway. I was here, and then I was gone. <laughs> All right. Uh, ba 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 Yeah. So, he, a lot of his stuff was well-known as modernist style of poetry, but it's all, like, augmented sonnets that have, like, a modern twist on them. Yeah. Um. He... <clears throat> <laughs> Jeez, yeah. I'm a mess today. <clears throat> he often... <laughs> He often deals with themes of love and nature, as well as the relationship of the individual to the masses in the world. He was also a very satirical writer. Again, another reason why I think he and Dorothy Parker would get along. His work was influenced by fellow modernists Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound, as well as the Dada and Surrealism principles Mm. he was exposed to in Paris. So, it's not quite as, like, obscure of, like, all the stuff that I've read... But it is, you know, he'll he'll slice up the lines, uh, or, or he'll even slice up words to be on different lines so that you have to really, like, look at it mm-hmm. to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to say this to, to a more, to a better extent later, but, like, mm-hmm. he, he would, <clears throat> he would write this stuff and then... Uh, sorry, I'm reading my words as I... Oh, it's the, literally the next thing I'm going to say. Okay, good. Uh, many mm. people were confused by his work when they simply read it on the page, like I was saying, because it's just like the words are spliced up and yeah. everything's kind of out of order. Uh-huh. But then as soon as they would speak the words out loud and like read it aloud to somebody, it would make complete sense and you mm-hmm. could hear every emotion he was trying to evoke from you. And everything became clear all of a sudden when you read it out loud. And so to me, that makes me think like, oh, he was like the OG <clears throat> spoken word poet, you know, yeah. like, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Mm-hmm. I think that's fun. Cause that's a big thing that we talk about on here. Yeah. Um, his poems often utilized words of his own, own creation or words repurposed to his liking. Like, like Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, like in this, it, when he was talking in, in his book, uh, uh, Amy, he mm-hmm. was talking about, Uncircus of non creatures. Like mm-hmm. I would get the, the red squiggly lines when I wrote that down. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah. neither of those are words, but he would like repurpose two words or like put them together into this new meaning thing. And yeah. um like he would use if, am, or become as uh nouns. Mm. And I pulled a poem to read today that sort of demonstrates that yeah. because that was really intriguing to me. <clears throat> yeah. uh, uh, he has been called one of the greatest lyric poets in our language, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. Um, that was by John Logan in his essay, Modern American Poetry, Essays and Criticism. In his introduction to his collection, Is Five, he argued strongly for poetry as a process rather than a product. And this was like a radical thought at the time, but mm-hmm. I think it really resonates with me at least Mm -hmm. today it's all about the process and like the i think it's actually kind of a different concept than the instagram poets that we've been talking about where or or like tyler not gregson from the week before Mm -hmm. where his first draft is his only draft you know but it's it's all about the the process for him so the poetry was sort of a living breathing thing you could Mm -hmm. revisit it and make it again or or always edit it. It was, it yeah. was constantly changing. During his lifetime, E.E. E. Cummings received a variety of awards for his writing, including the Guggenheim Fellowship in 1933, 
Shelley Rem- Memorial Award for Poetry in 45, Harriet Monroe Prize for po- from Poetry Magazine in 1950, and another Guggenheim Fellowship in 1951, as well as a two-year Ford Foundation grant of $15,000 in 1959. Mm. So, he was very decorated. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, un- unlike many other writers of his time, Cummings' work did not change much from the 20s to the 50s. And many critics called this a failure to develop as a writer and Hmm. said it was one of his major weaknesses. Hmm. But others saw him as merely clever, but not really somebody who's going to last through time or, like, going to hold up, (laughs) and which is, like, ha-ha, bitches. Right, right, um, Well, that's, like, it makes me think of, um, uh, like, Robert Frost, where, but they, so his style, they were like, oh, yeah, he, like, it was a good thing that he just stayed true to his form and everything and didn't follow mm. the trends of the time and just wrote what he wanted and everything. So it's like, you guys don't like it when E.E. E. Cummings, Cummings right. is doing it, but when Robert Frost did it, it's fine. Well, because E.E. E. Cummings <clears throat> has a very different style than Robert Frost, so I think it's like... But, yeah, but like, Robert Frost at the time, like, they were going through sort of like, is when there were there was lots of like experimental forms and everything mm-hmm. like that, and his was very much more just like simple and straightforward and everything. So sure. it's like... It's definitely a very different style, but it was, his was different from the style at the time. It was still controversial, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, George Stade in the New York Times best, or sorry, New York Times book review claimed that, quote, intellectually speaking, Cummings was a case of arrested development. He was a brilliant 20-year-old, but he remained merely precocious to the end of his life. That may be one source of his appeal. Hmm. And I think that's really interesting because... He's doing just fine, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Another critic said, Cummings is too much out of the stream of life for his work to have significance. The reader must not mistake Mr. Cummings for an intellectual poet. Like, burn. I mean, it's it's amazing to me that we, we thought this at some point. Yeah. That this person who was... immensely influential right. and just because he was avant-garde and mm-hmm. different and like and stayed true new... to this form that he liked and right. preferred to use right it's that they were like mm. yeah it what he wasn't all always regarded as like a quack though like a lot of people really liked yeah, his work yeah um his, his supporters would say things like uh you know, I mean they, they would sing his praises and yeah even still do um one of them being Jenny Penberthy, and in one of her essays, she said, Cummings' achievement deserves acclaim. He established the poem as a visual object. He revealed by his x-ray probings the faceted possibilities of the single word. And like such prose writers as Tom Stoppard, he promoted sheer playfulness with language. Despite a growing abundance of second-rate imitations, his poems continue to amuse, delight, and provoke. Mm. And that's sort of the school of thought I'm in. Yeah. Uh, so I have two poems for you guys today. And the first one is the really the only poem I think I had ever read of his before, like, really, like, sought out and, like, knew it was his. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't title his poems so often they are just the first line, mm-hmm. um, like many others we've had. So this is I Carry Your Heart With Me. Yeah. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. 
and whatever is done by me only is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root, and the bud of the bud, and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Mm. I just love that so much. Yeah. I, I think, I, I don't remember the first time I heard it, but ever since then yeah it has been something that i'm like okay this is i want this like tattooed on my body i want this red at my wedding i want this red at my funeral i want this on every wall in my house you know Mm -hmm. like it was just like it's such a a beautiful depiction of love and it the cool thing about it to me is that it's not just romantic love. Mm-hmm. I think this can be platonic love. This mm-hmm. can be, you know, like friendships and stuff. This yeah. can be familial love. Mm-hmm. This can be relationships. You know, it can be, and, and it's, it's so universal of a thought mm-hmm. that I just, I'm, I'm moved and moved by it, you know, in every walk of, of my life so far. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. You've heard this before. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Um, I mean, I just love it. I love it's, like you were saying before, when you read this poetry out loud, it just sounds right, Mm -hmm. and it just sounds beautiful, and I love, um, like, especially what sticks in my mind is when he says the the root of the root, the bud of the bud, the sky of the sky of a tree called life. Like, just Mm -hmm. the way that it flows, and it's like... You can see and picture it, and you know exactly what he's saying and what he means. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it just makes sense. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, what I had noticed this time after, because um, I, I instead of copy and pasting the poem into my notes, mm-hmm. I, I wrote it out, like mm-hmm. I typed it out, and I was noticing that where I thought that there were spaces mm-hmm. or punctuation or something, there wasn't. Um, so uh, for anybody who's seen this poem, you can. You, you can see that the first line is, I carry your heart with me, parenthesis, I carry it in my heart, end parenthesis. And the... But my heart is on the next line. On the next line. And there is no space between the parenthesis and... Between me and the parenthesis, mm-hmm. or between the parenthesis and I. So it's mm-hmm. all just sort of this, like, flowing, never-ending line, yeah. like... Anywhere that he uses a comma or a semicolon or any sort of punctuation, it's always, like, without a break in the line. There's Mm -hmm. never any spaces used unless it's between words themselves. And -hmm. then all of it, again, is is lowercase. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why he did that. I I mean, I I barely touched the surface of all of this information that they have on him, but... You know, I was getting most of mine from Poetry Foundation, from Wikipedia, from Mm -hmm. different interviews and stuff, or or articles. And, I mean, I would be very interested to know 
if that was something that he, you know, if there was like a deeper meaning behind it, mm-hmm. or if it was just him being his avant-garde self and saying, mm-hmm. like, well, nobody else is doing this, so I'll do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I have to believe that it, it was maybe a little bit more yeah. in-depth than that, but mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so yeah, that was the first poem, mm-hmm. and again, one of my favorites. And then the last one is an example of that using words when they in a different way than they would normally mm-hmm. be used. So like, I don't know, using a verb as a noun or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, again, doesn't have a name, but I'll just start. Love is more thicker than forget, more thinner than recall, more seldom than a wave is wet, more frequent than to fail. It is most mad and moonly, unless it shall unbe, than all the sea which only is deeper than the sea. Love is less always than to win, less never than alive, less bigger than the least begin, less littler than forgive. It is most sane and sunly, and more it cannot die, than all the sky which only is higher than the sky. So, I read this for the first time doing this research. I had never heard this poem before. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to make sense of. Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful and fun to read because it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, that ABA or whatever format it is. is very fun and, like, easy to read. But... It doesn't make sense and it feels really wrong on your tongue, Mm -hmm. which is so opposite of this other one where Mm -hmm. it's just, it flows and it feels so right and like, Mm -hmm. who knows what you're saying, but it works and this is just, some of the words are like, what? It's like you kind of trip yourself. Like, love is less always than to win, less never than alive. Like, it's fun to say, but it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what. I'm saying. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So it was really helpful to like type it out, really look at each line separately. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I think it's just a, a beautiful poem about love, mm-hmm. you know, but it, and it's, and it's just, to me, it sort of sounds like love is this bigger thing that we can't explain always. Mm-hmm. And so why not use language that maybe doesn't make sense your first time around? Because love doesn't always make sense the first time around. Love doesn't necessarily fit into this like flowy, beautiful language that we often use with Mm -hmm. it or to describe it. It can be this sort of like rocky, bumpy thing that's like more thicker, you know, that's incorrect grammar, improper grammar, but Mm -hmm. we... But we see it here, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that, I mean, it kind of does sound like love, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, that was the other one. I like it. Thank you. I think I have, I think I've heard that one before, but it's, yeah, it's one that, like, you have to sit there and think, and it's one for me, like, I sometimes understand things a lot better when I'm reading them versus when I hear them say it, sure. or when I hear someone say it. Mm-hmm. So, like, looking at it on the paper, I'm like, okay, I get that, but, like, hearing it, it sounds fun, and it sounds, but I'm like... What? What? It, it trips your ear up. You're yeah. like, ha ha ha, pretty. We, 
Hold on. Go back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was... Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, the, um, like, even just the first stanza, like, it it takes me, like, two or three times reading it to be like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, when they say it's more seldom than a wave is wet, so love is rare, right? Because waves are always wet because it's water. So, okay. But then it's more frequent than to fail, okay, what does that mean? You know, like you have mm-hmm. to like go through every line and, and if you want to, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to analyze it, it can take a, a quite a long time, but I personally am one of this, his supporters. I really like Eat yeah. work. Yeah. So it was really fun to learn about him. And it, it was one of those things where I would, I would be researching, you know, like on Wikipedia or on mm-hmm. Poetry Foundation and, and I'm. I'm getting an article that has lots of highlighted highlighted links, and then I'm clicking on all of those links and yeah. finding even more things about him. And I'm right. like, okay, what's this? Okay, what's this? And I was really surprised by how excited I was to learn about his um, novels. Mm-hmm. And I really want to read Amy. And mm-hmm. Amy is spelled, um, where is it? E-I-M-I, which mm. is Greek for I am. Mm. But it's pronounced Amy. Um, anyway, so if you're like looking it up and you can't find like A M Y, where is it? <laughs> it's E I M I, and it's Greek for I am, and it's that's interesting. Yeah, it. I would. I just want to read it because I feel like it's probably written. I mean, since it is technically prose, but mm-hmm. he uses these like long verse, like I was talking about. Mm-hmm. It, it's just very intriguing to me, and I, I am yeah. often interested in reading those kind of things so mm-hmm. yeah i just Very i nice. went on a little tangent with him but that's I, great i want to learn more even about mm-hmm. him so. mm-hmm. that's yeah. awesome very cool thank you for sharing all that yeah and yeah love it awesome well that brings us to the end of the episode that brings us to the close <sighs> We have any goodbye messages for them? Yes, we do. So, like always, we'd like to say a special thank you to Zach Atkins for our theme music. We'll mm-hmm. call it that intro and outro music, music. Which apparently, maybe we're <laughs> Emily. <laughs> Emily has uh, some new a new melody to giving put some you a music run to. for your money. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but yes, thank you. You can follow him on or find his links to his social media in our on descriptions our Instagram on Instagram. And, yep. Uh, and then, all, as always, please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening, mm-hmm. especially Apple Podcasts. That's, that helps a lot. Uh, give us your feedback. We want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And, and if you feel so inclined, there is a link at the end of all the descriptions on whatever platform you're listening to that you can support us. Um, and uh, support, if you like our, our work, support us and help us get more equipment or be able to put um, resources into research and attend um, conferences to learn more about what it's like to podcast because mm-hmm. you know we're just starting out we're learning things right. as we go yep yep so we want to you... help uh create a better listening experience for you guys so yeah. anything you can give us to help mm-hmm. get on that journey is is always helpful and it's always great if you feel like sharing it with someone you think would enjoy or yeah. sharing it with your followers or friends whichever whatever platform you prefer <laughs> that would be wonderful and i think that's it that's all folks we'll see you next week see you next week bye-bye